We as a people must once again have eyes for nobility, to look for the great and honorable things of God, which are beyond just the technicality of this world, but are the great principles of God, which are eternally true. The record of building the wall found in Nehemiah chapter 3, it is a noble account of the first discovery of meaning for a people who knew nothing but shame, despair, and desolation. They went on an adventure where they discovered something which was eternally true, which drew them near to God. You see, God is holy, creating order and life that he may take joy in the beauty and excellence of his creation. And the children of God, they were not made in his image to spite it, but instead to reflect it through great works of nobility that were rooted in the holy principles of God. These walls that you find in the book of Nehemiah, they are not mere walls, but they are symbols of God. They are declarations of his holiness. And they point to the unique nature of God and his people. And in this chapter, we behold a moment where people discover the beauty of literally building on God's principles. So thank you for joining me. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor. Let's open up in prayer, and then we're going to jump into Nehemiah 3. And I know you might look through your scripture and say, well, that's probably one of the blandest, most boring chapters out there, but I promise this is going to take an interesting turn, so bear with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we are assembled together, Lord, wherever we may be, I pray that you come, send your Holy Spirit, open up our hearts and minds, that we may have eyes to see the world as you intend for us to. Let us have a firm backbone. Let us pursue great and noble things. Lord, let us be men and women who righteously are loyal to you, and we understand that being in your image, that we must reflect your image, and not just merely spite it and wallow in victimhood. Lord, let us look to the great and excellent things that come from your kingdom. Let us reach our eyes far beyond this earth and look to you. Lord, in doing so, we trust that you will come and bless us. Lord, bless our world and all that goes on in it. We ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So today, we're going to be jumping into Nehemiah chapter 3. And I'm not going to lie to you. It is a list of names of workers and the work they did. But at the same time, there is something beautiful about this because this is the meat on the bone. This is a historical account of what actually happened. And that tells you there was real revival. This is the first fruits of their revival. So I'm going to read a little bit of a paraphrase of Nehemiah 3 with you. We're going to get through this. It's going to be fun. And I'm going to try to illuminate some of the odd and unexpected people that you find here working. So jumping right into Nehemiah 3, it says, Then the high priest Elishib set to work with his fellow priests, and they rebuilt the sheep gate. They consecrated it and they set up its doors, and they consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hananel. And the men of Jericho, they built next to them. And what is something fascinating about this opening few verses that we find here in 1 and 2 is that you have the priest, including the high priest. He's come down. He's not just somebody in an ivory tower, but he's getting his hands dirty, kind of like Nehemiah does. And not only that, he is still doing the priestly things. You know, they're supposed to consecrate, make things holy. You find the priest out really doing the physical meat work of God. And by that, there's the flesh and blood reality of going out there, consecrating the walls, being involved in the real world. This isn't a society where the elite stay in their corner and everybody stays in their corner, but this is where the people are coming together in common, and it is a beautiful thing. Even coming down to the sheep gate, and you know, that kind of speaks some commentary in it for itself. You know, sheep, they're kind of the lower end of society, but the high priest and the priesthood, they're not afraid to go down there and get a little bit dirty with all this stuff. And even the men of Jericho come and build next to them. Zakur, son of Emery, built with them. But then, going on a little further, you find the sons of Hesena build the fish gate and laid its beams and set up the doors, its bolts and its bars. And if you've ever worked on something like this, you can kind of feel 
setting up wooden doors, the bolts, the bars. This is something which has a tangible reality. You know, there's a little bit of that dryness, which kind of makes your hands feel like the moisture has been sucked out of them. But this is what the men are doing. They're coming together. They're seeing something beautiful. Next to them, you have Merimah, son of Uriah, and Hazak. They're making repairs. And next to them, Meshulah, son of Berechiah, son of Melchizabel. And they're all making repairs. Next to them, Zadok, son of Bana. He's making repairs. And the Tekites, they're making repairs. And what you find interesting is the nobles of some of these people, they don't want to put their shoulders to work of their Lord, which is a fascinating thing because it tells you that even when good revival is happening within your own house, there will be a few people who say they're too good for this. Now, as you'll find throughout this text, not all the nobles take this attitude. Again, you found that the high priest, the priesthood, their class of people is out doing this. But there are going to be some people, and presumably I would imagine actually of all walks of life, who say, no, we don't really want to serve our Lord that way. But you know what? Nehemiah, he's not slowed down by it. He says, okay, you don't want to do the work? Well, we'll just bulldoze on past you. We're working. Build the wall. In verse 6, Joida, son of Pesek, and Meshulam, son of Besodia, they repaired the old gate. They laid its beams. They set up its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, repairs were made by Melitiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the son of the Marathite. And the men of Gibeon and Mitzvah, they were under the jurisdiction of the governor of the province beyond the river. And next to them, Uziel, son of Hariah. And the goldsmiths, they come and make repairs. Next to him, Hanani, the one of the perfumers, is making repairs. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And now this really is a fascinating thing here because you've again found people you may not expect to be working out there working. You have goldsmiths and you have perfumers. And yeah, you wouldn't think like an ancient world perfumer out there doing something like this, some guy who makes perfume, but he's picked up the sword in the trial too, just like Nehemiah has and says, you know what? It's time for the comforts to be over. Living in shame is over. All the times of just being a perfumer, we're done with that. It's time to be a man, pick up the sword in the trial and go and work. And I can only imagine what this wall looks like with this collection of the people of God that come together to make this happen, this assembly that comes together. It is a bizarre collection, but nonetheless, they are doing something that is ambitious. It is higher than anything they have ever attempted to achieve before, and they do it just in 52 days. And then next to them, Rephiah, son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Again, here you find somebody of nobility. Yeah, there's some noble people who said, yeah, the call of God tells me I've got to go down there and work to a you know jewelry maker and perfumer. Okay, well, we'll go down there and we'll make the walls with them. And next to them, Jediah, son of Haramah, made repairs opposite his house. And next to him, Hattusa, son of Hashbaniah, made repairs. Malchiah, son of Haram, and Hasub, son of Pathamoab, repaired another section next to the Tower of the Ovens. And next to him, Shalun, son of Halosha, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs, he and his daughters. So again, you've got the whole family, in some cases, coming out to work. They come out, the men and women of the people of God, they have a common vision. And this is phenomenal. This is truly what it means to be made in the image of God. And in fact, the scene that you find in Nehemiah chapter 3, yeah, I get it. You've kind of got to put some salt in there. You've got to season this chapter up in order to be able to read it because it's a lot of names. It's a lot of just descriptions of people and the work they do. But buried deep within this, and I say deep, but it's quite obviously there if you've got eyes for it. Buried within this text is something very, very interesting. The people of God, they understand what it means to be the family of God. And they come together as God's servants to build up 
not on some technical matter, not because they say, oh, you know, we need to do business with the world, so we got to have walls. They're not making some argument that says this will be good for defense. No, Nehemiah come along and said, it is shameful to live this way. And on the principle of coming out of shame and going towards the holiness of God, they make these walls as a declaration that their God is holy and therefore they should be holy. Whole families come out to do this work, and it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. In verse 13, Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it. They set up its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and they repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. And then Malchiah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Bershechem, repaired the dung gate, and he rebuilt it, set up its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, son of Kolhoza, the ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate, and he rebuilt it and covered it and set it up with doors, bolts, and bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that could go down from the city of David. And what we find here is something also beautiful. And by that, I mean, they're actually building things that aren't just utilitarian things. They are starting to step towards the fountain gate. They're starting to step towards the palace. They're realizing that this is more than just a a bland, boring structure, that this really is a declaration that God is holy. This is a statement for the world to see. Verse 16, after him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of Has, the district of Bethzera, repaired from a point opposite of the graves of David, as far as the artificial pool and the house of the warriors. And after him, the Levites made repairs. Rehem, son of Bani, next to him, Hashib, ruler of half the district of Kalah, made repairs of his district. And after him, their kin made repairs. Benui, son of Hinnadad, ruler of half the district of Kalai. Next to him, Ezer, son of Jeshur, ruler of Mizpah. And another section opposite of this sent to the armory at the angle. So again, what you find in these verses, there are people who are noble people. There are people who are just commoners. They're all coming together and they have a common vision. They're people, they see something. And you see, unity for the sake of unity is hogwash. There's, there's, it's a fake virtue. It never has any meaning. You've got to have unified around a common vision. That is a clear vision, not some murky vision. You know, we're not doing some HP Lovecraft monster where we're trying to get some ethereal thing out there. That's kind of mysterious and also amoral. No, what you're looking at is the eternal moral and meaningful reality that God has called us to something which has substance meat on the bone. Verse 20, and after him, Baruch, son of Zabi, repaired another section from the angle to the door of the house of the high priest Elisha. And after him, Miramoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakas, repaired another section from the door of the house of Elisha to the end of the house of Elisha. And after him, the priest, the men, the surrounding area, they all make repairs. It really is a great thing. Imagine if you've ever made repairs to your house. If you've ever worked on a, a project with your family, which again, I grew up on a farm. We've built a lot of stuff. Um, whether it be, you know, building a shed or something like that, or actually going out and fencing and doing things of that, you know, there's always an interesting dynamic that comes whenever people are doing manual labor. It's not always the, the most polite setting, but yet here we find people inspired to do a great amount of work in a very, very quick period of time. And you find all sorts of people. Sometimes people are like, okay, well, I'll do the spot that's across from my house. Other times you got people saying, no, I'm going to go a hundred cubits that way. You find a very dynamic embracing that people have there's it's a very stratosphere thing but nonetheless there is a common a common vision that bleeds through all of them it is one that permeates through the veins of all of these people and it is a beautiful beautiful thing 
Verse 25, Palau son of Uzziah, he repaired opposite the angle in the tower, projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. And after him, Padiah son of Parash and the temple servants living in Ophel made repairs to a point opposite of the water gate and to the east in the projecting tower. After him, the Tekites made another section opposite the great projecting tower as the wall of Ophel. And as we get close to the end of the chapter, you do find some servants coming out working, the temple servants. You find a whole wide variety of people because, you see, God doesn't want us to look around the world and see all this class warfare and stuff like that. God wants us to be freed from it. God wants us to see what is really happening here in Nehemiah chapter 3. This is very similar to what we're going to find in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to go there shortly. We're also going to go to the throne room in the book of Revelation because what is happening here is something which is integral to how God designed men and women throughout time. This is a very, very important thing. In verse 28, above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each one opposite of his own house. And after them, Zadok, son of Emmer, made repairs opposite of his house. And after him, Shemaiah, son of Shekinah, at the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. And after him, <coughs> y'all forgive me, Hanani, son of Shalomai, and Hanun, sixth son of Zalaf, made repairs to another section. And after him, Meshelam, son of Berkiah, made repairs opposite of his living quarters. And after him, Melchizedek, one of the goldsmiths, raised repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the other merchants, and opposite of Muster Gate and the upper room of the corner. And between the upper room and the corner of the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. All right, if you're still here with me, praise be to God. That's a lot to take in. And I'm not going to lie, it is a lot to take in. I, this chapter, it is phenomenal, but man, the template of it, the medium by which it is shared with you is brutal to get through. But it is something which we must take into account. Because while Nehemiah chapter 3 it can easily be overlooked, it is, it is mostly just a record of work in the name of workers. And I admit, I've said this several times, it is a bland format. But we do well to appreciate the meaning and the content that is found in this chapter. You see, the chapter, its content is beautiful for it details the first fruits of revival for the people of God. Our God, he is a holy God of achievement and excellence. We can't forget this. This chapter reminds us that our willingness to achieve, our willingness to pursue excellence, that is an extension of our spiritual lives. Excellence and achievement, they are extensions of holiness. God commands us to be holy because he is holy. We were created in the image of a mighty and loving God to reflect his image and not to be pitiful and wallow in the terrible shame of our desperation. The first fruits of this revival, they are work and an opportunity for work. They are a fight and an opportunity to fight. They have meaning and an opportunity for continued meaning throughout life. And the walls they are building, they're not mere structures of architecture, but they are physical expressions of the principles of God. And the people, they find meaning and unity by standing for the principles of God and against the enemies of God. And that is something we must learn today. We're not called to just get along with the world. We're not called to find the path of least resistance. No, if you want revival, don't wait around for laws to change. Don't wait around for technicalities. Don't get wrapped up in the world on the terms of the world, but instead stand for the principles of God and against the enemies of God. 
Yeah, that's right. The enemies of God. People aren't sanctified by their positions. People aren't sanctified by their willingness to be open-minded. No, you're a fool if you think that. We look to the holy principles of God and say, this is why we do what we do. We speak on moral terms and we look to God and his holiness and we make those declarations. We build beautiful things that reach up to the heavens and say, God is holy. Therefore, we should be holy. The primary reason for building these walls is not technical. And while it is true that walls, they give you good defense, they help with business, they help facilitate things. You know, you've got all those names for the different gates because it, it helps, you know, a city run. But that's not the real reason why Nehemiah comes here. That's the technical reason, but it's not the real reason. No, these walls, they're built on the principle of rising out of shame and pursuing the holiness of God. Defense and all those other useful utilities of a wall, they are secondary matters. When Nehemiah comes to the people, he doesn't give them this technical thing. We'll say, well, this could happen. Somebody could attack us this way. No. Nehemiah comes to him and says, it is shameful, shameful to live this way. We are going to rise up and find the meaning of God once again. And if we want revival in our culture, that's how we're going to do it. You don't fight back the idolatrous God of this age with technicalities or laws or hoping to hook it one way or another. No, you fight it on the terms of what is the holy principle of God and how does that guide us? The walls, they are a declaration of God's principles. And this is a vital fact we cannot overlook. Our current age is riddled with spiritual warfare that seeks to bring our nation down to a state of shame, despair, and desolation. This cannot be defeated with technicalities and laws, but on principles that are deeper than laws. Technical blessings, such as having walls for defense, they are downstream from righteous principles. In our world, it wants to, us to focus on the technicalities, on the laws, the legalism, because that actually keeps us from God's principles. It keeps us from taking principle stands, and it ultimately keeps us from revival. We must stand on principles if we are to find revival, just as these in Nehemiah 3, they discovered those first fruits. And you see, there is a fascinating thing about human behavior here. And there's actually a fascinating lesson about reality in this chapter. And that is the relationship between principles and the material world. You see, virtues, they don't exist in the physical world the same way that like a wall does, but there is a connection between the two of them all the same. And in the church, we're sometimes, you know, reserved to point this out because it's a strange phenomenon. And if we all we do is talk about technicalities, says, oh, well, you've got to have this policy or that policy. You know, you forget that there is a bigger picture that is principled. It is connected to virtue. You can't always write virtues down, but they are something which is eternally true. The people, they are physically building something based on the principles of God. And the connection between principles, virtues, and reality is far more significant than we realize. You see, the beliefs and virtues that we hold in our heart, they will guide our lives far more than will our intentions. And whether or not we realize it, our world is truly shaped by the deeper beliefs that lay at the foundation of our being. A society is guided by the principles inhabiting the hearts of its citizens and not merely the laws on its books. This is why faith in God is so important, because it supplies us with tools and virtues that understand the world far greater than our own minds. Now, when I say that, I've got to qualify it by saying, let us not think that our faith is merely a tool, that it's something that we only embrace because it's practical and it betters our world. No, tools and protections, they are subordinate to the truth. And that's something we learn about the principles that Nehemiah is standing on. There must be light at the end of the tunnel. There must be a real virtue, a real principle, a real God, a real heaven. You see, God's kingdom, it has meaning by its own merit. 
God and his kingdom are not holy simply by comparison to the fallen world, just as God is not righteous simply by contrast to evil. God is holy because he is. Our world is filled with phrases like, eh, it's not the destination that matters, but the journey. Yeah, that's garbage. That's foolish and hollow. Throw it in the trash and never come back to it. And you know why it's foolish and hollow? Because it teaches our youth to cease caring about destinations. And that ultimately teaches them not to care for meaning at all. Without a destination, there's no need to start the journey. And for that would just be aimless wandering. But there is meaning found in working on the walls. And that is found by pursuing the great joy of accomplishing them. You have to pursue that. Furthermore, this isn't the end. You know, chapter 3 is not the end of Nehemiah's memoir. There's going to be more work to do even after accomplishing these walls. God's kingdom, it is a real kingdom. And it may be something which we don't always understand its full extremities, but God's kingdom is a real kingdom and it has a great many works to be done. God's work is not aimless, but it is instead true with distinct purpose. And this chapter reminds us that there is great joy in accomplishment. God himself finds joy seeing what he has created. Moreover, at the end of each day of creation, God takes time to find joy in seeing the goodness of his work. And we must cast a vision for our young people to open their minds, to open their eyes, their ears, that they can see and hear the joy of accomplishment, to illuminate the fact that God desires for us to reflect his image in doing meaningful work. This is a noble thing. There is great nobility in work. And this is a great gift of God that has largely been forgotten. You see, in our modern day and age, we've had a very unfortunate phenomenon happen. Our modern age has placed an extraordinarily high priority on intellectual work, which has turned out to be very unfortunate because it has unexpectedly robbed our youth of deeper meaning. Through acts of clever deception, our world sells meaningless endeavors to young people by telling them that hollowness is meaningful. You know, it sells nihilism meaninglessness. It sells things without reason as if they are meaning. And it's very terrible. It's self-contradictory and it's stupid. Just plain up stupid. Participation trophies, affirmation without the call towards virtue, and equality by the lowest common denominator, they're all meaningless. Yeah, all of it's meaningless. You don't have to entertain it. Go on, move on with your life. Build on the holy principles of God. Don't debate with the serpent whether or not the fruit is good for food. You know, it saddens me when I look around our world and I see so many people who have done this. People who go to university and they go through the university system only to graduate and remain working in those universities after they graduate. They don't even leave for the purposes of teaching, you know, younger children or teenagers as they develop. But instead, they trap themselves in this fantasy world of philosophy that is unaccountable to reality. And that's not how God designed us to be. Being able to physically see the wall that you have worked on with your hands, that you've shed your blood on, that you've sweated on, that you've, you know, had your arguments and spats with your family, but then made up with them on. That is one of the things which is the true human experience, working through the difficult paths. Being able to physically see the wall that you have worked on, it teaches people a great many things and a great many things which are now lost in our modern society. You know, it wasn't enough for God to imagine his creations or to write them up on a blackboard or something like that, but instead he brought them into a material existence to see them. We're not designed to be intellectuals cut off from seeing material results from our labor. And society is damaged when people separate themselves from this fact. This is especially so when this is the state of its leaders, which is where we're at now. Working with our hands not only gives us meaning, but it also keeps us accountable. It keeps us in reality where we realize our ideas might be wildly wrong. 
So many of our thinkers, they haven't had to deal with the fact that their ideas don't fit the real world and they're teaching a lot of young people trash. They get away with it and they're not held accountable and it causes society to decay. But what we find in Nehemiah chapter 3 is a true Old Testament of something found throughout Scripture. Now, this is where we're going to get in that strange turn that our sermon is taking, because if you've made it here, it's time for us to take things to really a place of adventure and critical thinking. What we find in Nehemiah 3, it is a true Old Testament versions of Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And it's a reflection there of the throne room that you find in Revelations 4, verses 2 through 11. It's a reflection of the thunderous might of God with that sound, the machinations of great things coming, the block and tackles, building up the walls, the masonry work being done, the bolts being made, the doors being hung. There is a thunderous might found in this chapter that bears reflection to the magnificent vision that God has that is above the desolation of fallen creation. You know, this reflects that thunderous might of God, and it is a reflection there in Acts 2, which pulls people out of shame for the common good. So let's get into these two texts. We'll go to Revelation first because it's a fascinating read. So this is Revelation chapter 4, and this is verses 2 through 11. It says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there I was in heaven, and there stood a throne with one who was seated on the throne. And the one seated on the throne, there it looked like jasper and carnelian. And around the throne there was a rainbow that looked like an emerald. Around the throne there were twenty-four thrones. And seated on the thrones are twenty-four elders dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their head. And coming from the throne are flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne there is something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And what you find here in Revelation is a magnificent thing. God is not weak, pitiful, singing songs of wake me up or oh, I it must be weak so you can be strong. None of that. No, 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 no. That's all garbage. Throw it in the trash. Never come back to it. God is an awesome and strong and mighty God. He came and he walked among us to come to the least of his creations that he could bring them up out of shame. God loves us despite the brokenness, not for the brokenness and not into the brokenness, but out of it towards the throne of heaven. It is surrounded by the lightning, the peals of thunder, the beauty, the unimaginable, inarticulatable things like a sea of glass. And what we find here is something which is eternally beautiful and true. And around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, and the first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third like that with the face of a human face, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. And all of the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and inside, day and night without ceasing, they sang, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever these living creatures, they would give glory and honor and give thanks to the one seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders would fall before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns down before the throne, singing, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. What you find there is that God's creations, they're around him in the throne room saying, You are worthy. You are beautiful. You created things for your joy. They are doing the work of God with God in his kingdom. And what you find there in Nehemiah 3 are people coming together saying, You are worthy, God. You are not a God of shame, therefore we as your people, we will not be a people of shame. 
You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. We're going to build up our world. You created all things and they were created for your joy and by your will they existed and were created. So we're going to create too. What you find there in Nehemiah 3 is a very, very beautiful thing because as far as the Old Testament goes, it is about as close as a replication or reflection of what you find in Revelations 4, the throne room with the beast and the elders as humans may be possible of doing. They are coming together working, not because of some technical detail, not because of legalism, but on the bare principle of saying we are not a people of shame because our God is not a God of shame. Going to Acts chapter 2, we find this again. Acts chapter 2, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon everyone, because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home, and they ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. In Nehemiah's time, day by day, people are being added to those in the revival. They're working, they're building. This is a very similar happening in the Old Testament. Yeah, people always look at Acts chapter 2 and say, oh, look, that's socialism. No, it's not. There's no government. There's no coercion. There's no gulags. There's no language of class warfare. There's no Marxism. Instead, there's people who are being personally convicted by the Holy Spirit to come and love, and they are acting as something aspirational, which rises up above the human capacity, not lowering people down to the lowest common denominator. And Nehemiah gets this. Nehemiah and all of his workers, the entire collection of Israel that is willing to come out and work, they come together, they hold together in a common good. The people of God, they are truly loving one another in godly reflection. That's what you find in Nehemiah 3. They are elevating their brothers and sisters from the shame and giving them the noble beauty that is found in being part of the family of God. They pull people out of shame and give them the meaning to love one's neighbor. They give them meaning. People are giving meaning to their neighbor and truly reflecting the love of God. And that's the love of God that will be perfectly exemplified in Christ Jesus. These people in Nehemiah 3, they have come together, unified under the common goodness and holiness of their God, and they are building. They are building the city of God where none may live in shame. And this is fascinating. The family is very important to God. God designed men and women to live in family units, that they would join together in the smallest form of society and walk with God to maintain his holy order. Very often in our modern day and age, I, I am disturbed by the vagueness used to describe what it means to be in the family of God. People use the words like community and without articles or, you know, prepositions thing, but, you know, we live community, whatever. But that's too vague. It's very much vague. God didn't come to his people and say, I'm creating you for community. No, he says, I come and create you for family. Our early brothers and sisters in Christ, they weren't sent to the amphitheater over accusations of community. No, no, they were sent to the amphitheater under accusations of incest because they called one another brother and sister. They used the language of family. And family is something which is integral to God and his creation. The family, it provides a unique structure for creatures of reason. And God did not create it by accident. The family design, it has been with mankind since before sin, and it is of the utmost importance to God. The Israelite people were called out of the family, and Christ's church was modeled after the very specific design of the family. There is reason in how the Jewish people framed their history around their family lineage. 
For they understand that family life is not a random detail of creation. It's not something you put up with while you're here on this earth, but instead it is crucial to the design of all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. God cares deeply about our families and the meaning they have. God desires for our families to aspire to the heavens and to be holy and excellent just as God is holy and excellent. And in Nehemiah chapter 3, we see different families working together to achieve something great as they serve the God of heaven. They have a unifying vision for the eternal principle of God's holiness. They have a principled vision that looks towards victory. It looks beyond the chaos and desolation around them, and they are able to accomplish something greater than anything they had ever before attempted. And this chapter, it shows us something of great meaning and great nobility. And what seems to be just a bland archive of history is, in fact, something to which we should all aspire. For it shows God's people embracing the hard work of building up our world on God's principles, just as God intended. So let's close by saying the Lord's Prayer, shall we? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power, and glory forever. Amen. God love you, and have a blessed day.